Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hello, my name is Drew Horning, and we are here with Jenny. Jenny, would you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Jenny Lillydahl, and I did my process in January 2017. I'm so happy to be here with you, Drew. Nice. And I should say that, uh, Jenny, you and I know each other because you did a workshop for the Hoffman teachers at our all-teacher conference, and you brought what you do so well in the world, Jenny. Why don't you explain a little bit about what you Yay. do? Yes, I, my husband and I, my husband John Sweeney and I own the Brave New Workshop Comedy Theater in Minneapolis. And it happens to be the longest running satirical comedy theater in our country. It was opened in 1958 by a man named Dudley Riggs. And we've owned it the last 22 years. Uh, and I don't perform so much as I'm a teacher. I teach improvisation. And people always conjure up an image when they hear that, either fear is, or... <laughs> yeah, right. When you, when you, how do you um, define improv? Well, I happen to see improv as parallel to life. So... Uh, certainly there's the stage version and the performance art of improv where people get up on stage and improvise for other people, which I have done and do teach. But I primarily teach now sort of this idea of improv for life. So using the improv mindset and the tools of improv as a way to practice uh, behaviors that you want to have in your everyday life, like dealing with change or being able to think on your feet or going with the flow or being present. And um, I just love how improv is a playful and human way to practice some skills and behaviors that sometimes come hard to us. Nice. I love that. It sounds so much uh, aligned with part of what we do and help students do in the process is to practice life on that right road. Right. Yeah. I, I loved the all of the stuff we did at the process, which was you know physical and emotional and you know spiritual and all of that. Um, a lot of it aligned for me, or or paralleled what I do with improv, and it's probably one of the reasons I just had the time of my life at the process. <laughs> so you know, uh, Jenny, I was um, thinking when when anticipating this conversation. Uh, I was reflecting on you presenting to us and engaging us in the improv work that you do. And I was thinking like two minutes into it, I had these preconceived notions of humor and improv and two minutes in, as you're up there engaging and warm and energetic, uh, I had this sense of, oh my God, she's, she's nice. She's kind. <laughs> and, and then I realized, oh, 
I really do have a bias of comedy and improv as this kind of sarcastic flip heart closing experience. And in fact, yours was the exact opposite through our improv work and the, the, the stuff you had us do and say, I remember this yes. And, and we kept saying yes. And, and yes. And, and it was going around in the circle and, it was, I felt so deeply connected to the people in my group and so alive. I was so grateful. Oh, What's your gosh. take on all yeah. that? I, well, I think you're, you're all perfectly right. Like I do think a lot of humor is, can be biting and mean and um, can be used to separate or set someone apart or deal with their pain or whatever, <laughs> past demons they're dealing with. Um, but I happen to believe that improv, again, back to what I was saying earlier about improv being a parallel to life. We're all born improvisers and we improvise our lives. That true improv can only happen in the most safe space and you have to be able to um, trust people you're with. And so mm that can only happen when there's kindness and support. And um, if it's not kind and supportive, then, then all the other horrible things we do as humans can come out like, you know, our egos or trying to one up each other or trying to have status or all of that kind of stuff. So. Wow. Beautiful. What was a, a moment in time in your life post process where you felt like, oh, here it is. I can feel the work I did at Hoffman alive in me now. Mm, good question. I've had a lot of those moments. Um, one that comes to mind is, uh, so I, you know, I told you we own this theater. Um, my husband and I have run this theater for 22 years. And about two years ago, we kind of had um, a, a real financial hardship. Um, the first time in those 22 years that we actually, you know, had to look at potential bankruptcy or, um, and there were a lot of factors that led up to it, but, um, kind of in the end, we had to do some drastic things to ensure we could keep the business running. We had to let people go for the first time ever. We had to stop trying to create certain products. We had to shut parts of our program down. And I think normally pre-process, I would have flipped <laughs> flipped out and kind of <laughs> gone into that fight or flight response. Um, and it was really hard, but there was this sort of foundational peace and calm that I had the whole time. And it was a daily process that every day we were meeting and going, okay, what hard decisions do we have to make today? And we just had to look it straight in the eye and uh, it was really hard, but I was able to go home at night and just be with my kids and still be present with my life and not completely shove everything in a corner. And I totally attribute that to the process work that I had done. Wow. Beautiful. And when you introduced yourself uh, in your work with us, you uh, dubbed your kids Search and Destroy. Yes. That, do they know that they are so nicknamed? Oh, yes. Yes. Search and Destroy. 
yeah, uh, William is 16, he's search, Michael's 14, he's destroy. Yeah, there's a lot of great stories. It, like anyone who's a parent with two or more kids, you, it's hard not to compare, but uh, yes, William's the intellectual, re reasonable one, and Michael is all emotion and physical energy. They're awesome. <laughs> Have you, um, I imagine the, the work in the process has impacted parenting as well. What have you noticed there? I'll, I'll just I'll throw this in. I, I too have a, a 14 year old a boy and a 12 year old girl. So they're not quite as old as yours, but I relate to all of that. And do you have nicknames for them? I don't, but I'm thinking maybe <laughs> I should. I know either humor. either you should or no. Maybe I'm scarring them for life. But <laughs> um, oh, definitely the process impacted my parenting, and I'm grateful because I think before doing the process, I was in a constant state of self judgment and critique about I must be doing this wrong. I am screwing my kids up. I'm, you know, they're going to be scarred for life. I'm completely ruining them. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and God, I wonder if that's so much part of, I know it feels unique to you probably, or maybe not, but it doesn't it feel like on some level, all of us parents have some of that narrative at times, like, holy cow. I think so. Now, I mean, yes, I believe that's true. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's so, it, it just touches all, every part of your psyche and your confidence and your ill confidence. And so, yeah, I think, I think it, that's probably universal. And, and, and then what did you notice changing or shifting? I noticed that I, I don't listen to the judgment voice as much. and. I can be more honest with them. I mean, it helps that they're at the age they're at too, because I can talk to them about anything, but just being able to speak openly about, Hey, this is a pattern I have, or I'm stuck in this thing, or I'm sorry. I talked to you that way. Like none of it feels, um, life-threatening anymore it just feels normal like normal human stuff like wow. i think the process helped me realize like hey this is all human normal things it's not um something that's wrong with me yeah so you bring your full humanity to your relationship with them you're maybe even more humble about your stuff so to speak when it shows up yeah, that's a that I like how you said that. Yes, that's exactly right. And do you notice the impact it has on them when you talk like that? Uh, yes, on a good day, I think they love it and appreciate it. And if they're in a I'm teasing mom mood, they're like, "Oh, mom, why does this have to be like so deep and why are you, can't <laughs> like they know I'm more the like I love talking about that stuff we have a joke in the house that oh gosh mom's in the mood where she wants to have a deep conversation um so it's great and i actually think teasing is intimate like you don't tease people you don't like so i take it as a compliment 
Yeah, and the, and the fact that they're confident enough to um, be comfortable with you to do that. You know, um, I have the same experience with my kids. Sometimes they're like, oh, dad, dad's doing his uh, soulful thing, <laughs> <laughs> using my words back to me. But I, I maybe it's um, that I'm, I'm deluding myself, but I think that uh, even though they're teasing about it, I actually think they really like it and even crave it. I, I think you're right. Definitely. I mean, not your kids. I don't know your kids, but in general, yes. Do I you think. notice that with your guys? Do they, even though they tease you, do they appreciate it? Yes, I think so. I'm going to ask them now and ask them straight out. Do you like that? You'll have to get back to us and share the results of that. I will. Was there, um, in, in your process, was there a moment in time that, you remember more than others or where you you were proud of yourself in particular when you were struggling or something that stands out? Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, the work around, you know, your, my own parents, a lot of that was hard. And there was a point where I thought, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Or I met some resistance emotionally like nope I'm not gonna go there um and obviously I'm stuck there physically but I I I was proud of myself for kind of letting go and just sitting there and letting it um unfold and not having to pound my way through it I think I tend to if I feel like I'm on a mission for something or I have this like, I want to work on this. I want to, I declare I want to work on something. I tend to sometimes push too hard. And then it becomes inorganic and it becomes almost intellectual. And that doesn't work either. So I, yeah. there was a day where I remember just almost sort of surrendering and going, okay, I have no idea what to do next. I'm stuck. Um, and what happened, which was curious to me, was I, when I got to that surrender place, I sort of started noticing the little things around me. And there was another student who made a comment and he was trying to cheer me up or say something, but, and I don't remember the exact comment, but I remember it was a light bulb moment of, oh, I don't have to try so hard. It really is just about connection and taking every moment by by every moment, like not thinking ahead, not trying so hard to push through with an agenda, but just do the next step, do the next step, do the next step. And that came from just that person next to me and me being able to notice it. I don't know if that any of that made sense. Yeah, but <laughs> it does. You know, I was just I'm smiling as you talk because I'm imagining you in the, the dining room doing that that work, um, that writing work and, and, um, and there's some silence around it. So a chance to go inward and, um, those, those sweet moments of connection between students often and between teacher and student can, can, they always surprise me what, what is impactful for students later on when they report about it, it's often surprising little things. Right. Yeah. I, it surprised me. Um, 
and even thinking back of, you know, you, it's hard not to have expectations of what it's going to be like before you get there. And I think I had it in my head that there would be more interaction of like, I'm going to tell my story and everyone's going to listen. And, you know, like, um, and the fact that we were doing individual work, but still in this community of love surprised me how much that worked. And, um, and I love it. And I know I kind of crave that and I look for it in other places in my life. I think it's a, it's that community part of it was a surprise to me. And it's something I've sort of carried away as well. Yeah. You mentioned in a, a previous conversation that you, you look for it more and you're more impatient in a healthy way when it's not there. You, you bail on, on relationships more quickly that don't reveal the depth that you value. Is that true? Yes. I, although like, I like that word bail. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm out of here. That sounds harsh, I guess. No, no, it's true. I think I probably went through most of my life thinking I had to be nice to everybody and treat everybody. And I, you know, I still think it's good to be kind, but I don't have to give all of myself to people that um, can't connect in that way and then be disappointed. And, you know, it's a form of self-injury maybe to Mm. keep going in that direction. And so I'm just more aware of, and this sounds selfish, but I mean, I'm just more aware of, wow, that person shares the value that I do about connection and human compassion. And so that person is safe to be with. Whereas, you know, I'm going to force my agenda on all these people and they're not even in the same universe like that. I think we do that or I do that. At least I used to do that a lot. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I just have to share cause I'm uh, listening, um, on my hikes during this time and walks around the neighborhood during this time too. Um, Glennon Doyle's Untamed, her book, um, and she talks so much early on about the expectations societally that women are subjected to and the power that that has of being nice and being a good girl and the negative impact that that has. And I hear you say that and, and shedding that, it sounds like. Yeah. Oh, I have to, I have not read that book yet, but yes, I think there is a lot of that universally for many women. And, um, I think I knew that as a kid even, and I was always a tomboy and I was always a little bit underneath my skin, pissed off that women were treated differently. And I probably couldn't articulate it then. Um, but I had a chip on my shoulder of, I'm going to prove that I can be tough and I'm going to prove that I can be, and part of probably a little bit of the attraction of comedy was that, you know, it wasn't as usual, usual for women to, to kind of go far with comedy. 
I mean, certainly there are plenty funny women, but it was very male dominated and it's still a male can be. field, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I think a little bit of my chip was, well, oh yeah, I can be funny. I can be crazy. I can be out there. I can be irreverent. Um, for that exact reason, like I don't, I don't want to be nice all the time. That's no fun. <laughs> like yeah. I want to, I want to get muddy and make fart jokes. <laughs> That's good. Women can do those kinds of jokes too. Darn it. Um, so, uh, Jenny, you, you have done some, uh, powerful work in the nonprofit field as well as you founded, uh, and helped start the, um, Gilda's club, uh, in your city there of the twin cities. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Gilda's club, twin cities. And, uh, yeah, that was inspired by my sister who I lost to cancer um, about 20, 21 years ago. And she was young and it was unexpected. And one of those, you know, leaving the earth too soon stories. Um, she was 36 when she wow, passed away. 36. Had, yeah. She had an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and a husband. And um, it happened pretty quick because she was diagnosed in January and then passed away about nine months later. Um, and mm. so part of, you know, my time with her when she was sick was we, she was a middle school health teacher and she was really into mental health and she had struggled a lot with her own kind of mental health. So it was sort of a, um, a passion for her to help younger kids in that middle school age deal with hard issues. And she was a very uh, confident kind of out there person. Um, so when she was sick, she was adamant that we find some mental health support for her kids and her family. And I kind of helped started looking for stuff and really didn't find much. I mean, there were plenty of support groups for a person with cancer, but not much for the family and not much that wasn't like in the basement of a hospital on the third Thursday of the month. So, uh, so that's a, sort of a side gig. You wanted to establish something more legitimate. Yeah. And more accessible and more, mm. you know, not so packaged or formulaic. And, and I just by accident learned about Gilda's club that had opened in New York in 95. And so just started digging and went, Oh my gosh, this is it. And as a tribute and, to the comedian Gilda Radner. Yeah. So Gilda Radner who died of ovarian cancer in 1989, her psychotherapist, Joanna Bull and her husband at the time, Jean uh, Wilder started Gilda's club after she passed because when Gilda had cancer, she went to this place in California called the Wellness Community, where she got some emotional and social support. Um, and she writes about it in her book. If you ever read her book, it's always something which is heart-wrenching and beautiful. Mm. She writes about this place that she finally felt like, oh my gosh, even though I'm maybe dying of cancer, I can still live because everyone here understands and we're all 
dealing with this thing called cancer and it became her home away from home. And she talks about in the book, gosh, if I had one wish, it would be that everyone dealing with cancer had a place like this to go. And so when she passed her therapist and um, Gene Wilder and their couple other friends and a couple other Hollywood people started Gilda's club in New York. And so it's, it's focuses social and emotional support for not just a person with cancer, but their whole network of people, because the premise is, you know, when cancer, a cancer diagnosis is laid on a family, it really affects everybody emotionally. Um, and so the, what happens at the clubhouse, there's support groups, there's art class, there's nutrition. And in our Gildas Club in the Twin Cities, I teach an improv class every Wednesday at 1230. And it's probably is my favorite hour of my week, every week. Mm. Mm. What does that look like? It's an hour long. I, we usually have anywhere from five to 20 people. It's kind of a drop-in format. We get together, we check in, we go around and everyone has a moment to share their story really briefly. Excuse me. Someone will say, hi, I'm this person and I'm here at Gilda's because I have stage four breast cancer and, or hi, I'm Steve and I lost my wife to cancer three months ago and I'm here for support. And then we share an improv moment from our week, something that you know, either unexpected happened and we dealt with or some quirky moment or some like little joyful or tough life moment from the week. And then the next, for the next 50 minutes, we just play. So we play mm-hmm. uh, and we laugh and I've been teaching improv for about 27 years. And I still say these people in the Gilda's club improv class are the best improvisers I've ever worked with because they're just willing to be vulnerable and they are there because they want to connect and laugh. And there's no other ego reason besides that. Yeah. Just it's pure. Wow. So do you, do you find that there's tears and laughter at the same time? Yeah, but mostly laughter, mostly laughter. And I'll ask, I'll check in and say, Hey, what do you guys, what do you want to do? We want to play. We want to play. Um, and then they're so poignant and, you know, just in the middle of something, they'll be, you know, someone will say, wow, I haven't laughed that hard or holy cow, I didn't realize I was that worried about my niece until we did that little game. And they're just present and willing to jump in. And then when it, when someone needs you know, that more emotional support or they need to stop and do something else, we do it. It's really, I kind of let them drive and then I'm there to help make sure the guardrails are on. And, right. You know, right. You know, Jenny, um, three, a little more than three years ago, I lost a really close friend, uh, a lifelong friend. And he was 50. He had just turned 50. Oh, no. And, um, and he had a, uh, I think he was 10 and 8 at the time, two oh. kids. And um, I, I, I notice that my grief has changed. Um, and it's sort of being, um, it's, it's, 
it's being rewritten in a way. And um, I feel less trauma around it, trauma for his kids and his wife, and still the same heart-opening, gut-wrenching feeling, but it's a little kinder and more tender. And so I, I, I am curious about your sister. What was her name? Terry. Terry. So during the process, did you, or, or your work in general around grief, did the process help you rewrite the story with her? Did it help you grieve again her loss? Oh, yeah. Yes, it did. And I, it's interesting you ask, because I actually, I think because of the pandemic, um, a lot of those feelings have been coming back of that shock um, when you get the diagnosis. And, you know, the one with Terry was, you know, day one, it was she has cancer. Day two, it was and you have nine months and get your things in order. And so you're, it's the same feeling that I had, you know, a month ago of, okay, this is no longer the world we had yesterday. It's now the world today. And so I have been doing some just more writing about it. Um, and I'm surprised, you know, it's 21 years. It's still like, I don't, the word you just use, it transforms and changes and the grief goes through different phases. Um, but definitely the process helped. I remember actually about being home about two weeks after I did the process and having this huge urge that I needed to have a dialogue with my sister. Um, and I called or I emailed my teacher at the time and said, hey, can I grab you for a coaching session? Because I think I, I want someone to guide me through this. Um, and I did, I did some writing, like a writing conversation with her, um, right after the process. And it was completely life-changing for me because I think some things I had been holding on to that I wasn't aware of, I was able to say, and she responded and, um, I, I have, would not have been aware that was still there had I not gone to the process. And I probably wouldn't have had the tool and confidence to do that letter. I definitely wouldn't have without the process. So that was huge. Yeah. And when you, you, you talked a little bit about you deepening your connection to your spirit, your essence, and that the process gave you that uh, connection. Is that is that an example of? That. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. And permission, maybe. I've, I think I've always had sort of a, a yearning for the spirit. And, you know, it's had different forms through my life. But I think doing the process gave me like, the biggest kick in the butt permission to go. You don't have to hold back in that way anymore. You can go you can go all spirit if you want, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, uh, just full spirit. So that's definitely an example. Yeah. And, um, this brave new workshop, this, um, really, a um, well, trailblazer in the field, given you've been around, who are some of the people that have come through as students at the brave new workshop? Yeah. So, uh, some people might know it as Dudley Riggs, and 
Dudley Riggs Brave New Workshop. So Dudley started in 1958 and quite a few you know, Hollywood film writer type people. Um, some more notable ones. Al Franken actually was one of oh. a writer at the Brave New Workshop. And he started, he's from the Twin Cities. So he and Al, uh, Al Franken and Tom Davis, who were the first two head writers of Saturday Night Live. And then of course, Senator Al Franken later. Um, they actually started as high school kids at the Brave New Workshop. Um, and did a lot wow. of work and yeah. kind of cut their chops and still Al is still in touch with Dudley and us. Um, a lot of Hollywood writers. So Pat Proft who wrote naked gun and all those kind of quirky teenage boy movies. He's still, he was a brave new workshop guy and he's still in the twin cities and comes to the shows. And then quite a few uh, more contemporary Melissa Peterman, she was uh, the tall blonde on the Reba show and does a lot of sitcom work in Hollywood. And Cedric Yarbrough, who was on Reno 9, or uh, the Reno show. I'm blanking on the Reno 911. Um, mm. So sitcom people, the producer of Happy Days, and not, not as well-known as Second City Saturday Night Live alum. You know, it's Minnesota, so people are shyer and less <laughs> boastful about their talents here. I see. Yeah. Those, uh, those cultural patterns can um, play a role. Definitely. In fact, we were just talking about that yesterday with the pandemic and Minnesota's doing pretty well containing the spread. And I think part, partly it's because we're used to being socially isolated. In <laughs> you, the you do it well. Yeah, the Norwegian Lutheran heritage people are, you know, six feet is really close to us. <laughs> so how how are you doing uh, with the family in this uh, uh, shelter at home, staying in place, social isolating? We, I surprisingly well, knock on wood, I feel lucky. And maybe, I don't know if my mic is picking up a little wind. We are actually in Montana, of all places. We, uh, our boys' spring break from school was right at the front end of, right before everything kind of fell apart. And so we were heading to Montana just to stay at my brother-in-law's place. And then when we got here, decided, hey, this is pretty safe and pretty isolated and beautiful and we are doing everything virtually anyways. Let's stay here for a while. So we're in Montana and we're nice. We all are still getting along pretty well. And and I haven't heard any uh, search and destroy in the background. <laughs> I know. I'm 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 quarantined in my car in a parking lot. You're in your car. I'm in my car because uh, they're hogging the internet at the house. So I thought I'll go get I'll go get a good connection out in, the, in out a quiet the space too. Yeah. So so um, what are your thoughts? Given people might be listening during this uh, shelter at home, what are your um, what would be your advice for people for navigating this unique time given the improv work that you do? Oh, yeah. Good question. Uh, 
I one thing I've found myself doing that is completely from my improv practice is really trying to stay present and not think too far ahead. Um, and I think it's especially almost necessary right now because so much is out of our control and and we're we've been almost forced to be completely present. So why not go with it? You know, why not say yes to that? And um there's yes. that yes and <laughs> yes and I'm sure there's practical reasons, you know, like you have to plan ahead a little bit, but being able to be kind of on your toes and nimble and know that tomorrow it could be a completely different thing again. And well, it's like, yes, pandemic and yes, shelter (laughs) in place. And what else do you have for me life? Yes. And right. Right. (laughs) I know. And it's normal. I think it's so normal to feel that resistance and that like, no, I don't want this to happen, which I had that reaction too, especially, and it lasted really deeply for about a week where I'm like, all of the things that are now changing are unraveling in my mind and my gut. And once I allowed myself to do that and just kind of let it out and express that, and there's that Hoffman term expression, then I was able to let go of it and go, okay, I got that out of my system and now I'm going to deal with today. And that's very improv too. And I, I think we're all improvisers. I just think we, you know, to steal a Hoffman term, I think we get stuck in patterns where we forget we're improvisers. And so we think we need plans and we think we need control and we think we need, you know, predictability because we get used to that. And truthfully, we're, I mean, think of some of the amazing innovations that have happened so quickly in the last month because we, it was necessary, you know. Yeah, such resiliency. Yeah, and even practical things like I was at the hardware store and they had hung plastic glass from the ceiling and or plastic sheets and they had created the system where they could reach under and like people are coming up with solutions to things so much faster because you have to. And that's, I love that. I think that's our imagination and innovation working for us as humans. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's so funny because so much is made of being present and being in the moment. But part of what you're talking about is happening for you is that that's what your improv teaches you is to take whatever's happening in the moment and move forward with it. Right. Yeah, that is true. And it's, and I'm not, and not to say it doesn't have hard emotions with it because you know, like for example, with my sister, like, it's not like when I got the phone call that she has cancer that I was like, yes. And, you know, I mean, (laughs) I think that's where, um, that compassion piece that, you know, we learned so much about at Hoffman comes in handy. Like we still have to let ourselves have the human emotions and not judge what we're feeling. And then when we're ready, then we yes. And, and move forward. Beautiful. 
Jenny, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. Are you going to head back into the uh, house or are you going to enjoy the solitude a little more? I might take advantage of the solitude. There's some great walking around here. The universal new hobby of everybody on the planet, walking. I love that. The universal new hobby, taking a stroll. Right. Uh, It's all good. It is all good. Jenny, uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next time. You too. Thank you, Drew. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.